This is Abigail Favalli, and you're listening to George Fox Talks Culture. Well, I'm very excited to be in the studio today with Christine Emba, joining us via Zoom. Uh, Christine is a columnist for the Washington Post and the author, I don't know, I can't see myself. Can you see this book I'm holding up? (laughs) You can see it. It's a little blurry. Okay. (laughs) The author of this provocative new book called Rethinking Sex, A Provocation is the subtitle. And I, I actually met Christine in February at a dinner party in New York City, which makes my life sound so much glamorous than it actually is. It's the only time I've really ever been to a dinner party at New York City, but um, I got to chat with you then and heard about your book, and I've been really excited for it to come out, and I'm very excited to talk with you about it today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this is this is great. So let's just jump right in. So one of the key arguments you're making in the book is that there's something not that great about how we think about sex, about the narratives our culture has about sex. So what are some of the problems that you're diagnosing in your book? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I guess I can talk about how I started writing the book. I started thinking about the question of sex and our sexual culture during the Me Too moment Mm -hmm. in 2017 and 2018. And, you know, as a columnist for The Post, I was writing about um, sort of the, the high profile cases, the Harvey Weinsteins, Matt Lauer, et cetera. But then there were also all of these other stories that kept coming forward, whether it was the New Yorker short story, Cat Person, which if you're unfamiliar is about a college woman who goes on a date with an older man and has sex with him that she doesn't really want. That's kind of the whole story. Um, but it was, I think it's still the most read piece of short fiction that New Yorker has ever published. Wow. Um, there was the Aziz and Sari debacle about a girl who went on a bad date with the comedian and feels that she was pressured into sort of sexual activity that she didn't want. Um, and what was weird about these stories, even more so than the high profile cases, was the fact that so many women and men came forward and were saying things like, yeah, this, I relate to this. This has happened to me. This sounds like my dating experience. Um, and also that the thing that we had kind of held up as what was missing in those high profile cases, consent, wouldn't have solved these problems. Yes, Harvey Weinstein should not have sexually assaulted uh, an underling. He, you know, you can't rape someone. But just the absence of sort of force and assault um, doesn't necessarily, or rather, let me backtrack there. Um, Consent was clearly missing in these high profile cases. Mm -hmm. But in these stories that everybody related to, it felt like consent was there, and yet it hadn't really solved the problem the sexual encounters were still bad, depressing, traumatic, even scary. And in hearing the response to those stories, I felt, as Carrie Bradshaw would say, I couldn't help but wonder, (laughs) what was going on? (laughs) Why were people having so much of this sex that they consented to but didn't really want that they found kind of so bad? Um, If this was normal, something is deeply off and speaks to kind of a malaise in our sexual culture. So then in digging deeper into these questions, 
um, I lit on a couple of elements. First, like I mentioned, consent. Um, we talk so much about consent and how you have to have it. It's really important. And it definitely is, to be clear. I'm a big fan of consent. But I, if consent is the only standard we have for defining whether sex is good or not, clearly there are a lot of things that we're still missing. There's a lot that's being left out of the conversation and these bad encounters are still happening. And then there is just the way that we talk about sex and understand sex or try to understand it in the public sphere. It seems like we have resisted attaching meanings to it or actually questioning, you know, where we've come to our assumptions about sex, again, past the boundary of consent. And I wondered if some of the assumptions that were underlying our sexual culture, whether it's that, you know, sex didn't mean very much or that men and women experienced sex basically in the same way, um, or that in fact it was good to not have feelings about sex, were wrong or faulty and contributing to this sort of malaise in our culture in some way. Wow. Okay. So yeah, I think you're right about the consent. Okay. Consent is crucial, but it seems like that's a pretty low bar. If that's all we can say about our sexual ethics, that the best we can expect from sex is that it's not rape. It seems like <laughs> exactly. maybe there's more conversation we could be having. Um, so why, I guess I'm wondering in your, in your research and process of writing this book, why do women consent to sex they don't want to have? or consent to maybe certain kind of sexual acts that make them uncomfortable, but they kind of feel they can't say no for some reason. What are your, what are you, what are your thoughts on, on why that phenomenon is so prevalent? Wow. That's a big question. And there are a ton of answers, um, or at least answers that I've hypothesized. And I definitely want to echo what you were saying first, the idea that consent is kind of a low bar, you know, it's, it's a floor, a floor that we mm -hmm. need to have, but it can't be the ceiling and was never meant to be the ceiling. And we're kind of seeing the failures of treating it as such, but why would someone consent to sex that they didn't really want? Manifold reasons. I mean, they're the really basic ones, I guess, um, a sort of, sort of fear or anxiety about what might happen if they were to say no, that's like kind of a baseline answer. There might even be kind of mistaken assumptions about, you know, what they're consenting to. They consent to one thing and get another. Um, there's also, I think, a, a sort of cultural story, um, a cultural understanding of sex that many, both women and men have, um, that even if you don't fully subscribe to, as I found, uh, you kind of almost inherit by osmosis. This idea that to be sort of a modern, liberated, sex-positive person, and, you know, again, even the phrasing there, it's sex-positive, like, who wants to be sex-negative? Right. Um, you should be having sex. You should be adventurous. You should be trying things out and enjoying it. Um, and if you aren't, that's kind of your fault, and you should mm. try harder. Um, these are... Just a few of the reasons that I can think of, and you know, like lots more come to mind. But again, they're ones that even further, further sort of definitions or tweaking of consent don't really get to. You know, for mm -hmm. cases of fear, say, um, 
it suggested that we shouldn't just be getting consent, we should be getting affirmative consent or enthusiastic consent. But, you know, what does that really mean? Can it account for the vagaries of emotion, you know, the deeper reasons why someone might consent to something, even if they're not actually enthusiastic about it? Yeah, I think, I just think that asking only about why someone would consent leaves so much out of the conversation, whether that consent was fairly gotten, whether the things being consented to are good for your partner or even the person doing the asking, you know, what kind of society and norms and mores do whatever our activities are bring into being? Yeah. One of the, one of the points you make in your book that I think is really brilliant is the, there's this tension between the fact that, okay, any good therapist will tell you boundaries are good. It's good to have boundaries. It's good to set boundaries. It's good to set limits. But then in the, in the kind of sex positive discourse, the only real boundary that should be respected is the consent boundary. And then other things, you you shouldn't really make value judgments about other things. And so I wonder if there's, that's a tension as well. You write a little bit about that. Um, I think in your chapter, that's, it's called something like, not all desires are good, I think, or it's something, it's something like that. <laughs> some but desires are worse than others. Some desires yeah, are worse than others. Yes, yes. One of the more controversial chapters. Yeah, actually. I, yeah, I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about the argument you're making in that chapter. Yeah, I think what you pick up on um, when you talk about when you were saying what you were saying about judgment is really true. I think in this current moment, we have an unwillingness to make judgments in the public square um, to ask, you know, not just what's legal, but also is something ethical, is something morally good or bad. Um, And there are, you know, both good and bad reasons for this. We have realized, I think, more and more over time how sort of these moralistic judgments of this thing is good and this thing is bad can be used to marginalize people, have been used to oppress people, have put into place strictures that actually just weren't good for us. Um, And we naturally push back against that. We also want to be pluralistic. I mean, we live in sort of a liberal society Mm -hmm. and we try to be open to the idea that we might not share the same moral values as other people and ostensibly want to respect that, which is a good thing, I think. And then also maybe the darker reason, like if we don't make judgments, if we refuse to make judgments in the public square or have like firm moral boundaries between good and bad, even for ourselves, then we don't have to ask ourselves whether this thing that we're doing or have decided to do is good or bad. It leaves us free to not constrain ourselves because if we really defined it, we might have to do good things that we don't really want to do or not do bad things that we actually would find really exciting and fun. Um, I think though that this is kind of a general phenomenon in both that's more visible maybe in, in secular society, but also you know in sort of Christian spheres too. Um, this idea that moral judgment becomes a personal thing. Um, you can have sort of even your own morals or your own feelings about it, but you can't you can't place them on anyone else. You can't expect mm-hmm. anyone else to abide by them. And rolling it all the way back to your original chapter or your original question. In this chapter, I was arguing that 
you know, we should begin to say that some things might be better or worse than others and say so publicly that when it comes to sex, especially, we are really likely to say and often say, you know, no kink shaming. We don't want to shame anyone. Your desires are your desires. They're just sort of innate. You can't do anything about them. You like what you like. But, you know, all desire is socially constructed in some way, at least sexual desire. And even the desires that we have, we can choose or not choose to indulge in them. And so it's worth asking ourselves, you know, is this desire and the indulging in it, is this sort of sexual preference or taste or thing good for me in a way or good for my partner? And if it's not, should I refrain? Yeah, I think when you and you bring in some um, sources of, of ancient wisdom across different cultures into the conversation. And one thing that strikes me that's so very different in our contemporary moment to almost all sources of ancient wisdom, whether you look at, you know, Greco-Roman pagan sources or Christian sources or Buddhist sources, um, is there's this idea that actual, like that happiness or the good life can be found by, like through self-restraint, through Mm -hmm. becoming, um, learning how to steward your desires well, um, rather than unleashing them on the world. Right. But it seems like in our, in our kind of post Freudian culture, we've reversed that almost where restraint of desires is seen as this pathological repression and that true human happiness is about liberation, right? Freedom, freedom from restraint, like unleashing our desires. And so I think that seems like a huge, a huge tension. Um, and you, you kind of touch on that too in your book. Um, so I don't know if you have any, have any additional thoughts on that? I mean, is it possible for us to recover some of that um, way of thinking about desire um, in in order to begin to talk about boundaries beyond consent that might lead to better sex than what our culture currently offers? Yeah, no, that's a really important tension, actually. And it's one that I think I wrestle with throughout the book. And you know, sex is one sort of particular locus where this comes into play, but it's also just a question for our broader society, mm-hmm. whether we define how we define freedom, you mm-hmm. know, and whether total freedom, freedom from all restraint is actually good or if boundaries, whether in sex or anything else, um, might be good for us. And yeah, I mean, in the book, there's one of the early chapters is called We're Liberated, But We're Miserable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it comes from talking to a lot of young women and men who say, you know, I feel like we live in this great time for sex. Like the boundaries are down. We're no longer repressed. Like I can date whoever I want, do whatever. And it's actually kind of overwhelming. And I feel a little bit lost. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like nobody knows what they're supposed to be doing anymore. Uh, women are like, I don't really know how to relate to these men. And men are like, well, I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing with women and how to relate to them either. Um, and in, in a sense, all of that freedom has not actually delivered sort of the utopian, you know, sexual promised land that people think that they or thought that they were getting. And there's real concern there. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I don't know if you, 
Did you see Mary Eberstadt's review of your book? Did you read that? It came out recently. Oh my gosh, there was, it's great. But there's one line in there that I just loved and I'm going to not remember it correctly. It's her writing so great that um, I'm going to betray it a little bit, but it was something like, you know, what sex, sex positivity really amounts to is like letting your boyfriend watch porn and then reenact what he's seen and pretend that you're into it. Like that's what <laughs> I just laughed because I was like, oh man, I was so bleak, but it reminded me it's of- It's so dark. <laughs> it's so dark and depressing, but it it actually, I think is kind of true. It actually reminded me of that scene from the show Girls that you write about in your book, right? When I, because I read that yeah. review before I read your book and it made me think about that scene where the main character, you know, is having a sexual encounter with her boyfriend who then starts to kind of suddenly behave, like reenact this porn script that- it's like over the top ridiculous. So it's, it's like a horrifying scene, but also kind of like darkly funny, um, but very uncomfortable to watch, you know, cause he starts sort of berating her verbally and, you know, wanting to do sort of weird things. And she's like, Oh, okay. You know, and just starts to kind of play along and be like, <laughs> it you know, almost like, I guess. Yeah. Like, Oh wow. That, yeah, that's right. That's what she says. Like, Oh wow. I guess that was, it almost worked. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I don't know. I thought that was actually a brilliant depiction because that was one of the first times I don't remember exactly. This was a few years ago that I had seen more of a pessimistic depiction of so-called sex positivity in like a kind of a main, you know, just a an HBO television series. Right. And it was kind of showing a spotlight on some of the things that you write about that um, I think particularly your your generation is picking up on in a way that. I think mine, you know, I mean, I grew up in the like 80s and 90s, you know, and it was just like, you know, sex, sex positivity was like the thing. Um, And then I grew up in this kind of evangelical subculture where it was like purity culture was the response to the the kind of liberty and sex positivity. Those were like the two, you know, unhealthy kind of opposites to navigate. Um, And I went, my own story is very much going from one to the other extreme and then kind of more recently trying to find a a better middle ground. Um, But I certainly spent some time, I think, having that in my 20s, especially when I was in graduate school, having that framework of like, yeah, like everything, you know, like Dan Savage, whatever. I've listened to Dan Savage and, you know, if it's, you know, just be good giving and game and that's kind of it, right? And then whatever you want to do, that's fine as long as you're into it. But it's now I'm kind of like, ah, there has to be some kind of sense of human dignity underlying all of this, right? Because, you know, in talking about like having more limits or boundaries or moral norms, it's not this throwback to this kind of like pearl clutching, puritanical, like, oh, oh my goodness, you know, we shouldn't talk about sex or that's so naughty, right? But it's more like this kind of feeling of heaviness and sadness that like people are people are being degraded and kind of participating in their own degradation and they're being kind of told not to question it and to, to sort of say that they like it, you know? Um, and that just, I think is really depressing. <laughs> so yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't know if you have any thoughts on. on so, so many thoughts on this <laughs> one actually. So, you know, I, I actually, I quoted Dan Savage in yeah. the book mm-hmm. um, and I actually, talked to him recently oh, you about the book. He he read it um, and we talked about it on his podcast. And the thing 
I'm also very familiar with the sort of good giving and game framework mm-hmm. um, that Savage has. Mm-hmm. And I noted that in recent years, as he explained in an interview with someone else, he's actually come to sort of revise his thinking oh, on that point. interesting. You know, he said that <clears throat> in the past, I've suggested that any sex can be good as long as you're a good giving game. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. how many sex partners you have. But now after reading all of these letters and growing mm-hmm. older and talking to so many people, he said, I realized that it kind of does matter how many partners you have, because the more partners you have in some ways, the more likely you are to fall into bed with somebody who doesn't care about you and who isn't going to treat you well. Um, and that human dignity, sort of that care for the other person being present in the encounter, which is different from just being game and up for it, mm-hmm. is actually important. And that was something he began to talk about more and more recently. Um, yeah, I think one of the things in the book that I that I was really interested in is exactly what you described, this sort of odd pressure, this the shift from sex positivity being a positive thing to sex, almost an uncritical sex positivity mm. is what I describe it as. Mm-hmm. You know, the original feminists and the feminists who coined the term sex positivity had a really specific thing in mind. They were talking about, um, this was kind of in the late 70s, early 80s. They were pushing back against feminists who wanted to completely sort of ban Mm -hmm. pornography and sex work and maybe turn to lesbianism, like not interact with men at all Mm -hmm. as almost sort of punishment for a bad sexual culture that men had put into place. And Ellen Willis, who coined the phrase, um, said that, sex positivity was necessary and that meant actually respecting the fact that women could be you know self-actualized and have sex on their terms and that was okay you know women shouldn't stop having sex because men are bad (laughs) um that was kind of our sort of definition of sex positivity but over time that's the term is ballooned right it's become a totally different thing it's now seen as being good giving and game, being up for anything, uh, having sex frequently and loving it, like being a person who talks about sex in the open um, and not critiquing anything, not criticizing anyone's desires, just being like, as long as it's consensual, like we're good. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what we describe as positivity or openness. But I argue that, you know, that that definition is wrong and that it shouldn't be seen as anti-sex or sex negative to have critiques, to sort of interrogate where our desires come from, um, to ask actually if whether some kinds of sex are in fact better or worse than others, if, if things work for us or if they don't, or if they are bad for society at large. And in the chapter that I, that you talk about and that I quote this, you know, um, girls scene in Mm -hmm. I also talk about this one interview almost not even an interview that I had with a woman that I found so jarring and emblematic Mm -hmm. of this entire problem I guess and I'll so tell tell us about it yeah (laughs) yeah um First of all, one thing I'll say is that if you say that you're writing about sex, people just tell you stuff. Wow. It doesn't even have to be an interview. (laughs) People just have things they want to get off their chest, which is interesting 
that in such a sex saturated culture, people mm -hmm. still feel like they don't really have space to talk honestly about what they're feeling about sex. But anyway, um, I was at a party, um, just a holiday party, and I'm talking to this young woman and she pulls me aside because she wants to talk about this guy that she's dating. And I'm like, okay. And she says, you know, he's great. He's whatever. He's really nice. She likes him a lot. But he chokes her during sex. And she doesn't really like it. But, you know, she consented to it. So, and ostensibly, like, this has happened to friends, too. And so she asked me, is that okay? Mm. And that question was interesting on just so many different mm -hmm. levels. Like, the fact that it felt so taboo to be critical of someone else's desire, even when that desire ran to surprise choking you, that you had to ask someone else <laughs> to right. tell you that it was okay yeah. to not really like that. Um, the fact, almost this pressure to be sex positive in a way to sort of not judge and be open to anything when in fact, this is something that she really didn't want to be open to that she, that she didn't like, but she didn't really have any recourse because again, invoking consent, you know, it was consensual. Maybe if it hadn't been consensual, she could complain, but it was consensual. And so what do you ask after that? And you know, it showed that, again, that there's so many things that consent doesn't cover. And there are so many ways that, you know, being sex positive in this sort of broad modern sense is not actually, you know, bringing men and women all that much happiness in some sense. Mm -hmm. And in a way, the pressure to be sex positive can, for many people, feel like a new stigma instead of, you know, being stigmatized for not saying no, you're stigmatized if you don't say yes. And that's not freedom either. No. In fact, I would almost I would almost put it more strongly that it sounds like that kind of uncritical sex positivity is it's basically I mean grooming people to like cross their own boundaries. You know, like because it sounds like that conversation, she's looking for permission to have a boundary when it comes to right. sex. And she feels like she can't just give that, she can't just make that boundary she can't draw that boundary herself you know she it's almost like oh I can't just okay I don't like it but I can't am I allowed to not like it am I allowed to say that I don't like it is that okay you know and how she kind of comes to you seeking permission to basically draw a line um, that that kind of protects her own comfort her own dignity her own vulnerability you know I mean that's yeah that anecdote is pretty telling I think um if, if women, if we're so liberated, quote unquote, now that women feel like they can't speak up, that they don't like being choked during sex. That's pretty. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I read an excerpt from the book, um, in the New York times and it was about boundaries basically and how mm -hmm. boundaries can be really helpful. And one of the things that I pointed out is, you know, consent is a good legal baseline. Um, but we also need sort of social standards and norms mm -hmm. around sex in part because you know it can be hard to to hold every boundary within yourself like it's so helpful yes. to have recourse yeah. to be able to say you know this is not the standard we don't do this and be able to point to something outside of yourself whether it's a framework of christian ethics or even just sort of a shared set of norms that mm -hmm. our society would hold around sex mm -hmm. unfortunately you know we 
sort of in the push to rush towards liberation after what was felt to be oppression, we kind of got rid of all of these boundaries. And now people find it, I think, much more difficult to sort of set things up on their own. Yeah, no, you're totally right. Like it's, you have to be a very strong person of your, you know, and a pretty mature person. And um, so we need, yeah, I, I totally agree. We need some kind of social boundaries or social expectations like we do around dinner parties or something like you've mentioned that as an example in your book, <laughs> right? right? Like when you go to a dinner party, you know, there's some surprising things might happen, but you know, there's kind of a decorum. Like there's, you kind of know what to expect. Like it's not just anything goes totally at a dinner party. You know, you're not just going to have someone like suddenly surprise choke you sitting there or like throw, you know, like gravy in your face or something, you know, like there's some. Yeah. I mean, there's always, there's room for transgression and excitement Mm -hmm. and, you know, charge, but having sort of norms around what you can expect makes the experience almost safer and more welcoming for everyone. And I feel like this is also an implicit pushback, I think, to the people who say to me like, well, consent is enough because if you don't want to do something, you should just say no. You should, mm. you know, stand up on your own two feet and walk out the door. And I mean, yes, ideally, we would all be sort of strong and and self-willed and self-contained individuals who can do that. But in reality, you know, desire is hard. We don't always know ourselves. We don't always mm-hmm. know our partners. We are not always in the perfect state of mind to hold fast to our like internal ideals at every moment we need help. I mean, that's why we have rules. That's why we have laws that like give us something to point to that sort of direct us in a healthy direction. And I think while our norms around sex for a number of reasons, maybe don't need to be enforced by like the carceral state. Right. um, It's still helpful to have these standards that people can point to um, even past the point of just, again, did I rape this person? No, (laughs) we need a higher standard than that. Yep. If you were, if you were, if you had the power to kind of social engineer things a little bit, I mean, not, not in like a brave new world kind of way, but just sort of wave (laughs) your wand and okay, now here, here are some kind of social norms that have been, and you know, whether reinstated or just instated anew, what sort of um, norms do you think would be good that wouldn't go just swing the pendulum back to you know, something puritanical, but that would also maybe preserve a sense of dignity. Yeah, that's, (laughs) if I could, the sort of waving wand question is always hard because I immediately think of what I'd want and then think of all the potential follow-on effects. That's why the the policy question is always hard and not that I'm even (laughs) suggesting policy, right? Because you're just kind of thinking more about, you know, social norms, but um Yeah. I mean, a few things that I think have been somewhat corrosive um, Mm -hmm. to our sexual culture have been the way that porn has kind of infiltrated the way that so many people think of and conceive of sex. Um, And so making that not sort of the first port of call for so many people's sexual education would be great. Um, I think that in the use of sort of dating apps, especially and also just in kind of a culture that almost fetishizes capitalism, we've mm. sort of been pushed to think of people as commodities in a way, mm. and thus treat people very transactionally. Um, and I think that if I could wave a wand, and this is maybe like a mental shift more than a policy shift, um, I would try to push 
back against that, have kind of more accountability actually for people who are dating, which is not to say that, you know, someone is overlooking your sex life at all times, but in some ways meeting through friends or colleagues or, you know, work or whatever was in some ways actually, I think, a lot healthier um, and safer for people. Because again, there was a community that at least was somewhat interested in what you were up to. And your partner knew that if they acted too outrageously, it might get back to someone else. And so that helped hold off, not all, but some bad behavior. Because again, these were sort of norms in that you knew that somebody might know. Um, I think in it's it's just like hard to think of these in the abstract because it's so contextual, but mm-hmm. I suggest in the book a higher ethical standard for sex than consent. Mm-hmm. And I think in my ideal world, we would have a higher standard than just consent. It would be consent would be seen as a baseline, but we would simply expect a lot more from other people and be willing to walk away if that wasn't there. And the standard I suggest in the book is willing the good of the other, which mm-hmm. is uh, Aquinas, Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the idea that in a sexual encounter, you would be expected or hope to care as much about the other person's good as you would care for your own. Um, and that also implicates you and your partner in trying to figure out what the good is um, mm-hmm. in sex. Right. <clears throat> And realizing that if you you can't figure out what the good is, you don't know your partner well enough to be able to will their good, you're not in the right state of mind, then you would refrain from having mm-hmm. sex with them. And that would be the expectation um, that the other person is, is willing you're good or you're not going to feel the need to do anything with them. Mm-hmm. And even just having that higher standard, I think, even if it wasn't reached, even if it was just an ideal that people strive for and often mm-hmm. fail, would do so much more for our for our sexual culture than the current transactionalist like mm-hmm. get consent so that you can get the sex from the other person almost antagonistic viewpoint that we have now. I think that's a great I think that's a great um I think that's a great approach because it's not rules based which more kind of puritan um approaches or purity based pr- approaches to sex tend to be more rules based but it's principles based. And so it actually requires that, like you said, you get to know someone to understand what the good looks like for them in the particular situation. Um, you know, and I'm even thinking, I think you re- mentioned this in the book about how, again, I might be misquoting this, so you can correct me, but um, how women are, are kind of sometimes afraid to just agree to go to a drink with a guy because the expectation is that, oh, if you go out for a drink, then you owe him sex, right? So it's it's no longer like just going out for a drink or just going out to dinner. There is kind of this expectation that it's transactional, that if if you agree to just simply get a drink, then what you what you owe him is sex, and so then you don't even want to go get to know someone, right? So it seems like that's I don't know is that is that kind of how you characterized it? Did I? Yeah, I mean I think so. I cite in the book these statistics from Closer to Me Too moment that show mm-hmm. that. By far, more men and women were just anxious about mm. being asked out by a coworker or a colleague and considered more things to be potentially harassment than they had before. Mm. And many people said that this was just because it wasn't clear what 
things meant. <laughs> and I suggested that if there was actually sort of a clear understanding that things stopped at a certain point, um, then that might make sort of the landscape just a lot less frightening for people, for both women, um, but also for men who, you know, might want to ask a woman out or might want to encounter someone at a coffee shop, but don't want to be West Elm caleb you know, um, or assumed to be some kind of predator. I think actually one, and again, this is sort of not a, a policy, but I don't know, perhaps a principle or ideal. One thing that I that I think about in the book and that actually a number of people I talked to in the book sort of expressed was this idea that sex meant something to them, that, you know, however they conceived of it, sex was sort of a meaningful act for them, or at least an act that was unique and unlike other things that they did. Mm -hmm. And so many of them sort of wish that they could treat it with more care, that it was expected um, mm -hmm. that they would treat it with, with care, I guess. You know, I talked to a mm -hmm. woman who, <laughs> she described this sort of insane hookup that she was having with a guy at one night stand. Um, and she was sort of thinking aloud, spiraling in her head and asked him if he would respect her less because she had slept with him. And he was like, let's not even talk about that. It's just about lust. And she was like, wait, actually, I think it's, I think it's about love. Can we not just love each other <laughs> for a single hour or a single day and like treat this thing that we're doing as, mm. as something special between us? Um, and I think a lot of people express this longing for sort of care and empathy and realizing that when they were having sex with someone else, um, that their partner would recognize that this was in some ways meaningful and, and treat them with care. And I think bringing back this understanding or expectation that, yes, sex is significant in some way, um, not just, you know, a bodily function or an activity unlike like any other activity, like skiing, but sort of more or less dangerous, um, would go really far towards building a healthier sexual culture because it would, I think, help people stop and think and give them opportunity actually to stop and think. Yeah, you mentioned pornography, and I kind of want to loop back to that because that does seem like such a huge driver of a lot of this stuff, I think. I mean, you mentioned about how our kind of social scripts about sex have – and they shape our desires. They shape our sexual desires, right? There's this kind of um, like feedback loop, um, and I think pornography and the widespread – not even just availability of it, but – it kind of just permeates, I think, our, our culture in so many ways. And it's, you mentioned the feminist sex wars of the 80s, you know, like kind of anti-porn stuff. And and the porn they were fighting about was pretty eh, tame compared to, I think, a lot of the the porn that's on offer now. There's this like escalation that happens in pornography yeah. as things get, um, yeah, more and more kind of violent, more and more degrading. And then, you know, people consume that and then expect their sexual encounters in or they consume this kind of artificial um, depiction of these things and then they expect to kind of have that in the real world like that girls episode shows um, so I think that that it's hard to underestimate I think the power that pornography is having over just our um, 
our social scripts, I guess, that we have about sex? Yeah. You know, I, <laughs> I talked to a number of young men for this book too, not mm -hmm. just women. And one, another story that stuck out to me was this guy I talked to about porn. And he was telling me about how at one period in his life, he was watching porn so regularly that he realized that it was interfering with his ability to like connect with and even sexually respond to real life mm -hmm. women even the like a woman who he was dating who he really liked and yeah. you know thought might have actually been a life partner he had sort of trained himself to respond to this kind of avatar on a screen in these certain acts that he like didn't know how to deal with the person in real life and you know he chose to stop watching porn after that which seems like it was the right move is this the, <laughs> for him is this the um is this the guy who he st he decided to stop watching porn? Okay, by the way, if, you, if you're listening to this around small children, you might want to put on some headphones. But <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I know. You're, I don't know who this podcast. No, but is I actually right I do want to mention this anecdote because I think it's it's such a good illustration of what you're talking about, right? Where the moment when he decided to stop watching porn was that he had this wet dream, but the wet dream was about him opening his laptop. Was, is this right? Yeah, it did so not it was humans. It at was all. about yeah. So this kind of erotic sexual response to his computer, you know, and to his credit, he kind of realized like, whoa, this, <laughs> this is isn't good. Yeah, this is a problem, yeah. right? So I think that's that's a yeah. It almost becomes like this. And again, here I'm kind of appealing back to that kind of ancient philosophy idea of desire, but it becomes like this slavery, right? When we. Mm -hmm when we put so few boundaries around our desires, then our desires begin to become these, uh, I don't know, out of control forces that actually enslave us and dehumanize us, right? We kind of almost lose our dignity um, when we become so, I don't know, addicted to like a laptop, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. And dehumanization, I think, is an, an important part to loop back to another point in our conversation when, you know, we asked about what kind of desires are good or bad right. or worse than others. And again, it's so contextual, but I suggest in the book that, you know, we should question and we should actually think that, you know, desires that move us to degrade people or dehumanize people or objectify people are worse, in fact, than the desire to give care or mm. to love a person. Right. Um, because again, people are humans with human dignity intact. And if we want to treat them as humans, we have to sort of learn how to do so. And I feel like much mainstream porn is really centered around this, this ideal of objectification mm -hmm. in that, you know, it's shot for the purposes of consumption. Um, mm -hmm. It's shot as, you know, two people doing a thing. They're not necessarily personalities. You're not asked to feel for them. A woman especially is, you know, a hole or a mouth or, mm -hmm. you know, an object to be used right. and then you can turn it off and click away. And that can train us, especially because, you know, sex carves such deep channels in the mind, basically, right. um, to, to learn to desire certain things, whether it's, you know, fetishes that are harmful around gender, sex, age, etc., or you know, just certain states of mind, whether it's a fantasy of availability that, you know, doesn't exist in real life or the expectation that 
you have so much choice and can do whatever you want that's that's not actually true. And as those things that we've trained ourselves into sort of bleed out into our real life, because there's so much evidence at this point that, you know, the things that we watch can and do, in fact, have an impact on our psyche, um, this can become bad not just for us, but for society as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. So which... um which of the many kind of provocative arguments that you make in your book, which one made you the most nervous? Where you thought, oh man, I'm going to get flack for saying this, or was there a particular one that made you nervous? Writing the Some Desires Are Worse Than Others chapters chapter was difficult for me because first, I am also not immune to sort of this pressure to, to not judge, to not label. Um, and also there is this clear fear that it could be read as saying like, well, you know, certain people are bad for liking this thing and we should, right. you know, shame and push these people to the outside of the public square. And that was not what I was trying to do, but was, it's very clear that it could be read as such. Um, another chapter that I, I was interested in how sort of taboo interviewees found it to talk about the topic was the chapter entitled men and women are not the same. I was wondering Um, about that one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. In which I suggest something that kind of seems obvious to me, but Mm -hmm. almost feels a little bit taboo to say now that men and women experience tend to experience sex differently. um, And that that creates certain vulnerabilities um, on both sides, but often for women, especially. And that to have a positive sexual culture, we need to take those vulnerabilities and differences into account rather than pretending that everybody is exactly the same. Um, It was funny how many people I would talk to about this, men especially, who would say like, oh yeah, you know, I've dated women and they clearly think about sex differently than I do. But uh, not all women, and uh, I feel kind of bad saying that. Right, right, right. Women who would say the same thing, who would say like, well, you know, like, I thought that I could have this sort of slut pride ideal and, you know, like sleep around like the guys I knew and hold myself to this male standard. And maybe by doing so, I could gain the power that men seem to have. And I just couldn't really do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I feel like a bad feminist for saying that, but I, I just don't want that actually in the same way that a lot of guys seem to. Well, that chapter, I think when you talk about men and, you know, men and women are different. Whoa, <laughs> how provocative. Um, but Shocker. <laughs> yeah, where you where you talk about how just the stakes are higher for women when it comes to sex. And there's a one part where you put this brilliantly where you say something like, you know, a bad sexual encounter for a man might be, you know, kind of awkward or disappointing or not that pleasurable. But a bad sexual encounter for a woman, you know. It could end in like an abortion she doesn't want, or it could end, you know, there's, there's just, it's such a, that, that sexual asymmetry there when it comes to, when it comes to sex and how there's a need to almost restore a sense of gravity to what sex is. Cause right now it seems like we think about sex in a very casual way. That's much more adapted to the reality of, of male physiology, um, that totally overlooks the fact that the stakes are higher because of biological differences between men and women that however much we want to imagine that we've overcome, we just simply haven't and won't. Yeah, this is an interesting thing that I write about in the book too, this 
this kind of odd and warped understanding of equality, I guess. Um, you know, if you think about where the sexual revolution and feminist movement started and where we've ended up, um, the early feminists advocated for for women to be seen and valued as women and valued equally to men while also still respecting their differences. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that got kind of overtaken and suddenly sort of post-feminism, like this, the girl boss and lean in, right. play girl ideals are saying more, well, we can't really change society totally, but what about if we just allow women to reach male ideals mm -hmm. and say that the most successful woman is a woman who can play a man's game the best. Right. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't that women and men are different and can be respected equally. It was that, you know, we have playboy and that's still the ideal, but now there can be play girls <laughs> and girls can do the same thing. But this is almost, this is a quality of sort of the worst kind. Right. It's asking women to become more like in some ways the worst kind of man this masculine mm. ideal that you know doesn't respect other people's vulnerability that doesn't care that doesn't have emotions or feelings you know this ideal that actually the coolest and most successful woman is the chillest who doesn't mm -hmm. care about sex and isn't troubled by biology or timelines or anything else right that is a quality of a kind but it's not a it's not a good equality, mm -hmm. I would say. It's it's really lowered sort of the standards for for what we're looking for. Yeah. Well, I think your your book is hugely important, and it's it's saying a lot of things that need to be said, and you say them well, and you strike the right tone, and so I can't recommend it highly enough. And I I really do hope that it it reshapes the conversation around sex in our culture. Um, so thank you so much for writing it and for for talking about it with me. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm also encouraged to hear what you said about Dan Savage because I haven't listened to his podcast in like, I don't know, 10 <laughs> years or something. So I'm like, good. I mean, I think there is, there's, I feel like our culture is waking up to some of the things that, that are messed up. Um, and I, I don't know, I'm hopeful that we can maybe correct some of the overcorrection that happened um, over the past 20 years or so. So anyway. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. This has been a production of George Fox Digital. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the George Fox Talks podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts on your phone or computer. You can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks, where we have videos, publications, and more. And you can also find our playlist on YouTube at youtube.com slash georgefoxtalks. 